0: So, a few weeks ago, we started this Summer in the Psalm series by considering Psalm Two. Uh, And we introduce Psalm 2. It is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that points us uh, to Jesus, but it's one of those introductory psalms into the whole of the book of Psalms. Psalm 1 and 2 are like the front doors to our church building. Uh, Each of them open, and they help us to enter in Psalm 2 specifically, though, to point to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, uh, last time when I did preach on Psalm 2, this was back in May, I was trying to be coy and work through the text and, uh, you know, it's talking about David and then I was going to go, yeah, but it's really about Jesus and surprise you. Josh got a little irritated with that. He was telling me that as we were working through that, he's like, this is about Jesus. Why aren't you talking about Jesus? You're, you start talking about Jesus and, and that's the point of Psalm 2. Psalm 110, which we're going to look at today, is quite similar. It's a psalm and I'll tell you up front, it's about Jesus. It points to Jesus. And, and, and you may wonder, well, why are we going to Psalm 110? The whole point of the Summer in the Psalm series is to cover different types of psalms. We already did one of these psalms that points to Jesus. Uh, but the reason is this. I'm going to let Alan Ross uh, make a statement from his commentary. And, and every other commentary I read, every other Hebrew scholar that I've looked at, they repeat this same sentiment. Here's what he writes. Psalm 110 is one of the most fascinating psalms in the entire collection. And we could ask why. Why why do they consider it to be one of the most fascinating psalms? Well, One of the main reasons is because Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Psalm 2 is close to it. it. It's quoted significantly, but Psalm 110 is quoted the most. But one of the other things beyond being quoted in the New Testament is all of the tentacles that move Around Scripture that connect to Psalm 110. Uh, how, how this puts together the story of Scripture, how it brings certain doctrines to light for us. One particularly that I'll only mention now uh, is the doctrine of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We see there's, uh, there's more to the Godhead than one when we consider the truths of Psalm 110. And so let's get started by reading it. If you want to follow along as I read out loud, Psalm 110, a Psalm of David. The Lord, notice Yahweh, all capitals, he says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, and therefore he will lift up his head. Father, help us now to understand the beauty of this psalm. But to be overwhelmed With the majesty of our king. With the glory of our priest. Our savior Jesus Christ. May these next few moments together as we consider these truths. Be honoring to you. Be life changing for us. We pray it in Jesus name. Amen. So our psalm begins with a declaration of a prophetic word from Yahweh. Notice, the Lord, that is Yahweh, says or reveals something to my Lord. And before we get into what he says or reveals, we need to pause for a moment and kind of set the scene because this can be a bit confusing. My understanding is that David is receiving a prophetic word from Yahweh, from the one true God. He's revealing something to David about someone that David calls my Lord. David says, this person is my Lord. Hope you can see that. Yahweh says this to my Lord, David writes. I realize it can be a bit confusing, but what we have to understand is David is receiving this revelation from God about a coming king, about a descendant of David's, that David even admits this descendant of mine is better than me (laughs) he's greater than me and we see that because david references him as his lord david says he is my lord this is the setting and so what's the revelation spoken to this coming king well it's just that that he is in fact king (laughs) Notice the the revelation that's spoken. Sit at my right hand. This is what Yahweh speaks to the coming king. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So here is the prophetic word spoken to David's Lord, the future king. First of all, to sit at the right hand of Yahweh is not just a place of power and prestige. It is the place of power and prestige and this coming king is being invited to sit in this particular position, no one will have more authority apart from Yahweh himself. We go to the pages of the New Testament, and we read the somewhat comical and sad story from Mark chapter 10. It's found in other gospels where James and John come to Jesus. And you remember, they say, Hey, Jesus, will you give us whatever we ask you next? It's like, can you you give us a wish? And Jesus says, well, let me hear it. And they say, When we come into the kingdom, can we sit at your right and left hand? What are they asking for? They're asking for power. They're asking for a position of prestige. And Jesus says, you don't even know what you ask. And that's not mine to grant anyway. The second thing I want you to see is the coming king is promised in this statement of future victory that hinges upon the timing of Yahweh. Until is a key word. Until this happens. The enemies, when the until happens, the enemies of this coming king, they'll be forced into submission. The the, the verbiage here of of they will be a footstool for you is quite picturesque. If I were to kick my feet back up here uh, and sit in that chair and say, hey, why don't don't you come up here and let let me prop my feet up on you? That's a humbling position, isn't it? That's the picture, We can get another picture from uh, the book of, of Joshua where they chase those five kings. They're hiding in a cave and they pull those kings out of the cave. And Joshua says to his commanders, hey, put your foot on the neck of those kings before they're executed. It shows victory. It shows sovereignty over submission of the people. Well, the description of the king, the extent of his reign, they continue to be described in verses two and three. He goes on to say that Yahweh will extend extend this coming king's mighty scepter, his rod, so that it will rule in the midst of his enemies. And the visuals here are many. If you go back to Psalm two, we learned from Psalm two again several weeks ago that he will rule with a rod of iron. It shows the power that is there. Uh, You could could even think back to Moses as he took his own scepter and he raised it and the Red Seas parted. He took that scepter and he held it high and the armies of Yahweh won over the Amalekites. That's the picture we get. But Daniel 7 actually probably most beautifully describes this particular scene. It'll be on the screen behind me. Daniel 7 written Hundreds of years after this particular psalm would have been written, Daniel in his prophecy says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and it will not pass away. And his kingdom, one that will not be destroyed. It's important to note, even as we see in Psalm 110, that this king will rule from Zion. Zion is is a name that's given to a particular mountain that you find in the city of Jerusalem. But As you read through the Old Testament, that's expanded to describe Jerusalem itself. It's it's even expanded by Zechariah to describe all of Israel, that he will reign in this particular region. And then there's verse three, poetically, and if I could add, quite confusingly, (laughs) describes the support the king will have from his people. It speaks of those who are holy, those who are set apart, offering themselves now in service to the king. Willingly coming along to help and aid in whatever way they can. These holy are set apart, are described. The statement here says this, from the here's the here's the confusing poetry, from the womb of the morning at the dew of your youth, it will be yours. It's a description, I believe, of how the armies of the king, the servants of the king will gather. As, as quickly and as plentifully as the dew gathers on the grass in the morning. It's there, and it's everywhere. And it's always there on the morning you want to mow, uh, if I could add that in, and you have to wait. But that's the picture we get. And then making an unexpected turn, we find verse four. The psalm now announces not only has Yahweh anointed or ordained David's Lord to be the king, the everlasting eternal king. But he says, I'm I'm ordaining him also to be a priest. And again, not just any priest, but an eternal and everlasting priest. And Yahweh says, I'm not gonna change my mind about this. I won't repent about this. He says, Yahweh has sworn it and will not change his mind. You, speaking of the coming king, to the coming king, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so he's not just any everlasting priest. He's an everlasting priest after the order of Melchizedek. Well, who in the world is Melchizedek? And why does his name come up here? Well, Melchizedek means this, it's the king of righteousness. And uh, he is a figure that comes onto the scene in the book of Genesis And just as quickly as he comes onto the scene in the book of Genesis, he disappears from the scene. He's like dew on the grass as well. Uh, But there's an interesting story that goes along with Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a a Jebusite priest, uh, a king in the city of Salem during the time of Abraham. The city that would eventually become known as Jerusalem. And there's a great story that we find in Genesis 14. uh, One of those fun stories that just kind of gets nestled in amongst the history. Uh, Chedileim, one of the great kings during Abraham's time, uh, he had subservient kings, and some of those subservient kings, they didn't want to do what Chedileim wanted them to do anymore, particularly the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and others. And so Chedileim brought his armies into those cities, and he ransacked them, and he took those kings, and he took the inhabitants of those cities and all their stuff, and he was taking it back to his own kingdom. But you may remember that there was a citizen in the city of Sodom, that was quite close to Abraham, his nephew Lot, who had chosen that particular path. And Abraham hears of what's happened to Lot and his family. And so, in what to me is one of the coolest scenes, Abraham gets his, I think it's 318 trained men. I'm like, what, is this like guerrilla warfare? These were Abraham's special, special ops army. And they chase down this entire army led by Chetileomer, and they overtake them. And they are then freed. And so the king of Sodom and Gomorrah are grateful for what Abraham's done, but he frees his nephew Lot. But then as he is making his way back, he is met by the king of Salem, the priest of Salem, Melchizedek. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and Abraham recognizes Melchizedek as as one who is a true worshiper and follower of God, and he offers tithes, to this king-priest of the city of Salem as a tribute to God and what God has accomplished for him. You see, Melchizedek, like David's lord, this coming king, he was both a king and a priest. And that's the reason that unique combination is why he's mentioned, not only in this psalm, but you go to the book of Hebrews. And Melchizedek is mentioned in the book of Hebrews for like three chapters. And the point that the author of Hebrews is making is that Jesus is better than Melchizedek. He had become this mythological figure in the Israelites' mind based upon this story. And the point is, Jesus is eternal. He is eternally better. He is greater than Melchizedek. So now that we've been sufficiently introduced To David's Lord, the coming king and priest, we're now invited to consider his victory over the enemies. Verse 5, 6, and 7. Notice the opening line of verse 5. It can be a bit confusing as well. It says, the Lord is at your right hand, and he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. And so who is this Lord that is now at the right hand of this coming king and priest? I believe this is a reference to Yahweh. It doesn't use the term Yahweh. It uses the term Adonai. But but the reason I believe this is because when you look at the Old Testament stories of Exodus and you see in Joshua and Judges in the books of Samuel and Kings, it is Yahweh who fights for his people. It is Yahweh in his strength who does battle against the enemies of his people. So the kings, the enemies of this coming king will be shattered on this coming day of wrath. Now to give you a picture of what shattered looks like, it's the same word that's used in Judges 5. Remember when the wicked king Sisera comes into the tent of Jael? And Jael offers him some milk and puts him down for a nap. And Jael takes a a tent peg and a mallet and drives it through the head of this wicked king, shattering him. That's the description we get here. These kings will be shattered. It's, It's vitally important, though, that we make a connection here. The day of wrath that's mentioned here in Psalm 110, where Yahweh will do battle, where this king will do battle, is the same day that many of the other prophets call the day of the Lord. A coming day a final judgment. The day that is verse six says, he will execute judgment among the nations. Listen to the language here, filling the nations with corpses. He will shatter heads over the earth, over the battlefields of the Earth. Pretty vivid. Pretty wild. That's the victory that we read about in Psalm 2:9, where it says that he will rule with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a piece of pottery. This is then the, the same battle that we read about in, in the book of Zechariah chapter 14. It's going to be on the screen behind me. I want to read a few verses from Zechariah 14. Here's, Notice the connections. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. I'll gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be taken, and the houses will be plundered, and the women raped. And half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. It's going to be A very difficult and dark time. But notice verse 3. Then the Lord, Yahweh, he will go out and fight against those nations. As when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem. On the east, and, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the Mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valleys of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Isaiah. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the day of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. The dew that appears. Notice verse six. On that day, there will be no light, cold or frost. There shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time, there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. Half of them to the Eastern Sea and half of them to the Western Sea. And it shall continue in the summer as in the winter. Notice verse nine. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one as his name is one. Ezekiel writes of the battle and in chapter 39 and verse 12, he says it'll take seven months for the house of Israel to bury all the bodies. John writes about this, I believe, in Revelation 19 when he describes the coming King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And his word proceeds from his mouth like a sword and devours his enemies. There's a little bit of debate, and I'll I'll bring this up for maybe you nerds in the room. When it speaks of the head or the chiefs in verse 6 that will be crushed. Maybe that refers to the heads of the different factions that rise up against the king. But some see it as a reference to what we read about in Revelation 20 that the dragon is seized, the serpent is seized. And they see this as a connection that works its way through all of scripture because if you remember in Genesis chapter three, following the fall of man, God comes to Adam and Eve and Satan and speaks judgment. And in Genesis 3, verse 15, here's the judgment. He speaks to Satan. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And her offspring will crush your head, will shatter you, and you will bruise his heel. Some see this as a picture of the finality of what was promised in Genesis 3, that Satan will be Crushed and shattered. The psalm concludes with the king and priest, and now warrior drinking from the brook that is by the way, saying, "Therefore, he will lift up his head." And this seems to be a reference to his ability to now enjoy his kingdom. There, there's a peace, and and it's interesting. Again, if you if you tie in what's being spoken here in Psalm 110, and it's sometimes hard to 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 pin down the figurative language, but with what you read in Zechariah 14 about how waters will spring up and and water will flow from Jerusalem to the east and the west. And if you've ever seen pictures of Jerusalem or been to Jerusalem, it's a pretty dry place. Isaiah writes about it as well, that waters will spring up in the desert. And here is the king taking a drink from those waters. And as he lifts up his head, We recognize him. That's the king of kings. That's the Lord of lords. This is the one who's been given a name that is above every name. And at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That's Jesus. That's our eternal king that's the eternal priest. He's the one we, we gather here today to worship. To bow the knee. To offer confession of his lordship. In, in the songs we sing. In, in the prayers that we, we pray together. In the scripture that we consider. We recognize and worship our king and priest, Jesus Christ. You know, as I mentioned in the introduction, this psalm is quoted in the New Testament more than any other. If you go to the book of Matthew, chapter 22, and this will be on the screen, you can also look at Mark 12, Luke 20, parallel passages. Jesus has been answering another series of questions brought by the Pharisees. They were always trying to trap him, trick him. And after he had answered a series of questions, he turns the table on them and he asks them a question. And it has a little something to do with Psalm 110. Because he says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And and they answer in their normal, uh, been, been raised in the synagogue way. Well, he's the son of David. Of course, that's whose son he is. There's plenty of prophecies to point to that. And then Jesus says to them, how is it then that David... In the spirit, by inspiration of the spirit, referring to him writing Psalm 110, calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So if David, Jesus says, calls him Lord, how is he his son? And I love the end. And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor did anyone that from that day on dare to ask him any more questions. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> What's Jesus doing there? He's planting the seed. He's planting a seed of who he is. He's helping them to understand better Psalm 110. Something they've heard their whole life. No doubt a critical psalm for them to memorize and to understand. But he's helping them to gain clear understanding as we mentioned earlier the author of Hebrews applies this psalm twice once in the opening chapter saying that that Jesus is greater than the angels because none of the angels have ever been invited to sit at the right hand of God and then later uh, pointing to his his eternal priesthood and the, the 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 sufficiency of his sacrifice because he's not a priest like any other priest he's a perfect priest He's an eternal priest. He doesn't die one day. He lives forever. We can depend on him. But then there's Acts 2. You turn there with me, Acts 2. the day of Pentecost. I love how it seems like just this year we've come back to Pentecost so many times. And that's, that's God doing that, putting pieces together for us. But Acts 2, the Spirit comes, Peter stands to preach to the crowds that are gathered. And I want you to look at the last part of Peter's message with me in Acts 2. We're going to start in verse 29. Acts 2.29, Peter says this, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. They could take you to it. Here's where David is. Verse 30. But being therefore a prophet, And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, speaking of David, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and he spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades. And nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. your footstool, and let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter says, I'll tell you with certainty that Psalm 110, that's about Jesus. But notice what happens upon Peter's application. People are cut to the heart. And they say, what do we do? What are we supposed to do now? We we recognize he is the eternal king. We we recognize that he's the eternal priest, that he's the fulfillment of all we've been waiting for in the son of David. David. And what does Peter say? Repent. Repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And today I stand here in front of you 2,000 years after Peter stood in front of that crowd. And I present to you the same Jesus. The king and the priest presented in Psalm 110, Psalm 2, plenty of other places in the Scripture, the king and priest who was crucified and buried and rose again and has ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father, the same Jesus who will soon return to establish justice and righteousness. And I plead with you as Peter did, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Today's the day to confess your sin, to turn from your sin, to put your faith in what Christ has accomplished, to follow Him, to become allegiant to this King not this king, to become allegiant to the king. But what about us who are here today, and I'm already a follower. I I recognize that, that he's king. I've confessed my sin, and he's faithful and just to forgive me my sin, to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. What am I supposed to do? First of all, I would say this, don't take lightly his kingship. If there's anything we learn from Zechariah, and even if we went to Revelation 19, this is a king to be feared and revered. I think of Revelation 1, John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, the one who says, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved, when he sees This king in Revelation one, this king that he knows so well, what does he do? Falls at his feet is dead. In reverence, don't take lightly this king. I do think this is a hard concept for Americans to understand. Our own country's built on the fact that we don't want a king. (laughs) I don't want somebody to rule over me in that sovereign way and tell me what I can and can't do. It's just in who we are. And so it takes an extra step for us, maybe compared to some others around the world, to come to an understanding of what it means that he's king. It means he rules. It means we have to take seriously when he says, don't be angry with your brother. Don't covet your neighbor's things. Don't sleep around with people who you're not espoused to and you're not in a relationship with. We have to take seriously. They're his rules. He's the king. Don't take him lightly. Second, I want to encourage you with this, to set your hope on the return of the King. as there's a lot of things in this world that are broken, a lot of things that we spend a lot of time and energy trying to fix, trying to put everything back together. You know, there was a whole wave of, of doctrine that, that moved through years ago and and probably still cycles through occasionally to say that it's our job to bring the kingdom to the earth. And I think after maybe five minutes of trying to do that, those people realized, I don't think I can do that. We can't. Jesus brings his kingdom. Jesus establishes his kingdom. And we wait for, and we long for that. Should we live as if the kingdom is now? Yes. That's what the whole Sermon on the Mount's about. Living out of this love and the kingdom because Christ is in us. His spirit is in us. But we can't fix this. Jesus has to be the one who comes and makes all things new again and, and redeems the brokenness not only of us, but of creation. Today's July 4th, a day that we recognize our independence from the rule of Britain, and I'm grateful. I'm grateful to be a citizen of the United States of America. I've been to enough other countries that I'm grateful to be here. And I've talked to enough citizens of other countries to know that their greatest dream would be to be a citizen of the United States of America. But do not for one moment set your hope on a nation. Because if you've ever read the Bible, nations rise and fall as generations come and go. Do not for one moment think that that government is your hope. It's not. Medicine is not our hope. We got a lot of people right now who are sick. My grandpa Jim, my mom's dad, he's at Tulsa right now, Hillcrest Medical Center. He's got a lot against him right now. I'm not sure he'll leave. Medicine's not his hope. His hope is in Christ. Money's not your hope. We we, we tend to get in this pattern where we think, well, if I just had a little bit more, then I'd be set. I'd be fine, I'd be content. I don't think that's ever really happened (laughs) because we get that little more and and we realize, no, no, I I think I need a little more. There's nothing to establish your hope in 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 money and finances. Jesus Christ, our eternal king and priest, he is our hope. Set your hope in him. Tonight, we're going to set off fireworks. We're going to enjoy time together, celebrate, celebrating our freedom, celebrating even our fellowship. But friends, every day, and certainly every Sunday, as we corporately gather together, we gather not to celebrate a nation, not to celebrate a country, not to celebrate how much money we have in our wallets or how alive we are. We gather to celebrate the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. There's nothing greater than that. Finally, I want to encourage you to cry out to your high priest. While we wait for the return of the king, we don't wait in silence. No, no we wait with prayer, lives filled with prayer, praying to the one who, who made away the opportunity for us to pray by his death and resurrection and now says, hey, boldly bring your requests before the throne. I'm your high priest. I've made the way. When you need grace, pray for it. When you need mercy, pray for it. Because we have a high priest who gets us. And he's the one who invites us to pray. Psalm 110 powerfully reminds us. It's not about David. I think that's one of my favorite parts about it. David is so revered and here's David saying, my Lord, my Lord, it's not about you either. It's not about me. Because it's all and always about Jesus. Francis Chan in in his book Crazy Love, I know I've shared this before, some of you have read this before. I think it's at the very end of the book. (laughs) He shares this false scenario to say that, imagine you get cast as an extra in an upcoming movie. Let's say it's a Marvel, let's say it's Black Widow, the next big movie that's gonna hit, and you've been cast as an extra, and you're so excited, and you're telling everybody about this, and you, you practice uh, for your scene because there's some dialogue going on, and you, you walk by in the background, they don't even let you look at the camera, But you walk by in the background and you invite all your friends and you invite all your family. You gotta check this out. Maybe we we just show it here. And so everybody you know can come and we'll, we'll put it on the screen and here comes your scene. And there it goes. And about three people in the room saw you and the rest missed it. And Francis Chan says that's the absurdity of our lives and our pride and hubris. Because we tend to think that this life is about us and we're just here for a blip. On the screen, off the screen. This story is about someone far bigger, far greater, infinite. It's about the eternal king, the eternal priest, our savior Jesus Christ. So let's live like that. Would you bow with me this morning? If you are here today and you need to repent, you need to put your faith in Jesus, today is the day of salvation. If you have been cut to the heart to recognize your need for Jesus to be king, your need for a priest in Jesus, I beg you to call out to him today, to cry out to him today, confess to him today. And if you have questions in relation to that, as we have this moment, I'm gonna be quiet in just a minute, and you can come, we'll take you to God's word, we'll answer any other questions you have, we'll help you think through that. but also know there's a lot of Christians in the room. And there's a lot of us that we haven't really been treating Jesus as king. We haven't really been obeying his rules. Some of you are trying to find hope elsewhere and you're frustrated and you're anxious and you're angry and you're depressed because your hope is not set on the one who truly brings hope. Whatever your response needs to be today, this is the opportunity. Cry out to him. I'll give you a moment to do so. it's in this silence that Lord we trust your working your word could not be more clear on the kingship of Jesus today and I hope that as we consider him today that we recognize who he is And that, that in fact, gives us hope. That, in fact, helps us to, to want to rid our lives of sin and selfishness. Because I'm not king. He's king. I'm not the priest. He's the priest. He's the one who's made a way for me. God, help us today and help us tomorrow and every day that follows. To acknowledge the kingship, the priesthood of Jesus. What an incredible savior we have. It's in his name we pray, amen.